Hey, but I'm glad to be back. So my name's Ross. Uh, if you're new or you're visiting, we're glad you're here. Um, and don't believe that you're here by accident in any way. And we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we're going to look at Mark chapter 13. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to go to Mark chapter 13. And um, this is a very fascinating um, chapter. It's, uh, you find the parallels of this. So uh, Matthew records this teaching from Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25, specifically Matthew 24. And then if you went over to Luke chapter 21, you'll see uh, Luke is recording this teaching from Jesus there. And what is unique about this, uh, this Olivet Discourse is what it's called, is that Jesus is looking into the future. He's looking past his death and burial and resurrection. And so he's getting close to the time, and he's already talked to the disciples about what happens when they're in Jerusalem and that the, the, the death is coming, the crucifixion's coming, the resurrection's coming. But here in this chapter, Jesus is going to take his disciples and he is going to, to teach them about what is coming beyond his resurrection. And some of this will be related to what we see in the book of Acts, but also in our day as well. What it, what it will look like to live in this age of the church. But then Jesus is going to say that age, this age of the church, it's going to come to an end. And then there will be another age, a, an age of tribulation that is coming that will be marked by or ended by the return of Jesus in his glory. And so he's, he's looking past that. He's wanting to prepare the disciples. He's wanting to prepare the church and all of us who would read this afterwards. Prepare us for what, what life is, is like as a believer living in a world that is in rebellion against God. And so, Jesus doesn't want us to be surprised. He wants to prepare us. He, he wants to um, uh, give us a vision forward. So, so it's, it's prophecy, and, and, and we've got to feel like I've got to do just a little bit of work here on the front end because prophecy is this weird thing. I mean, it's, it, it's, um, uh, it, it's fascinating in many ways. But, but so, say this, prophecy is not only about what is to come. And, and certainly Jesus is going to talk to us about that this morning. But it's also about, about how to live now and when it does come. So it's, it's not only for our curiosities. Listen, curiosity is fine. I'm a curious person. But it's not meant for my curiosity. It's also not meant for conspiracy. It's not to be the fuel of conspiracy. It's not just something to satisfy my curiosity or, or that which, you know, becomes the, the linchpin of my conspiracy. The goal of prophecy never is to evoke fear. It's, it's meant to call us to obedience. And it prepares us, the, the people of God, how to live in a world where God has ordained 
all of the days. Let me say that again. It's, it, it tells us, it helps us to know how to live in a world in which God has ordained all of the days. All of them. And so, this, this Olivet Discourse, if you, if you wanted the real technical term, the theological term, it's eschatology, which uh, deals with the, the doctrine, the, the topic, the theme of end times. But in the midst of this, there will be 19 imperatives. That, that means commands. Jesus, in the midst of telling us about the end, is going to call us to action. So this is what I want to do. I'm just going to read a couple of these verses, and then we'll pray, uh, then we'll walk through them, and we'll walk through this whole chapter together this morning, Lord willing, if he doesn't come back before the end of this teaching, which would be great, actually. I'm all for it. So uh, this is how it begins. In Mark chapter 13, he records it this way, and, and as he came out of the temple, this is Jesus One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one, uh, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we find ourselves... as enamored with the beauty of the world that the disciples are. And, Father, as curious about when the end will come and what the signs will be as the disciples are. And so, Father, I pray this morning that as we look into what it is that Jesus says to these disciples and Father, to us today, that we'd be good hearers, that your Spirit would, would open our, our minds and our hearts, and that, and that Father, we would be, we'd be drawn to, to very clear understanding of what it is that you've called us to in this time called the church. And Father, we confess this morning, we want to be a part of that. And um, so help us this morning. And we, we pray this the only way we can. In the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, in verse 1, it, it says, it tells us, so they're coming out of the temple. And you can think about it this way in Mark's gospel. When you get to chapter 11, um, 11 and 12 are what you would call the temple teachings, if you will. And Jesus is moving in and out of Jerusalem um, in the Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday 
of this final week of his life, the Passion Week. And he's teaching the disciples, and he has a confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and uh, you know, what's the greatest commandment in chapter 12? And, and so Jesus is doing these, these teachings, and they're there in Jerusalem, and they're around in the context of the temple. And that's 11 and 12. And then here in chapter 13, we have this, and, and, he, and he came out of the temple and in some ways, that's a, you know, it's a physical description. He's come out of the temple. He's going to cross the Kidron Valley, and he's going to climb up to the Mount of Olives with the disciples. And one of the things you realize when you get over to Israel and you stand on the Mount of Olives is um, you look across the Kidron Valley, and there you see the, the Temple Mount. And in, in my mind, before I ever went there, I was thinking, I was thinking Colorado Mountains, Okay, that, that's not really the case. I mean, you, you know, I, I don't know if this is true, but you feel like when, you, when you're there on the Mount of Olives that if you, you know, you were really good with a slingshot, you know, you could get a stone from the top of the Mount of Olives all the way across the Kidron Valley, at least up to the hill over there on the Temple Mount. It, it's, it's not that far. It's, it's, it's right there. So if you were sitting on the Mount of Olives, you'd be looking right across this valley right there at the Temple Mount. You, you, you couldn't miss it. And, and when it says that Jesus left the temple, it's not just a physical description. I mean, it is that. It's, it's not only that, though. It, he, he has left the temple. He has crossed the valley. He is sitting up on top of the mountain. But there's something, I, I think, ominous and spiritual about it. I mean, Jesus has left the building here. He's walked out of the temple, and in chapter 11, look last week, he judged the ministry that was going on in the temple. That is not the way that God had designed it. Now Jesus has left it behind, and, and what's interesting is the disciples, you know, as they, as they left the temple, you know, maybe they're, they've walked away, and they're kind of looking back at it, and the, show, the stones would have been polished. I mean, it really would have been a sight. It was one of the ancient wonders of the, of the world, and um, the, this temple it had begun to be rebuilt when the exiles came out of, of Babylon when they returned. And in about 520, 515 B.C., you know, they start working on rebuilding the temple. You can read about it, Ezra, Nehemiah, and, um, Haggai, Zechariah, all these um, Old Testament writers are writing during this time, and they're rebuilding the temple. And, and, and then Herod, he, he's going to pick that project up a little bit later, and he's going he, to add on to it. It's all the second temple. But Herod's going Herod's to really make that place shine. And it was something to behold, and it had these huge stones. And, and so they were like 40 feet long and 18 feet high and weighed, you know, 400 to 600. Hundred tons. It was a it was a massive thing to behold this temple, and the disciples are like, "Have you have you seen have you ever seen anything like this?" It was it was it was wonderful to see. It was the pride. If you were if you were Jewish, you, you took great pride in it. Well, what Jesus is about to tell them is this temple that you see, 
all those stones. In not too far a distant future, all those, it'll, you won't be able to tell there was a temple here at all. All the stones, there won't be one stone left on top of another stone. It's going to be absolutely destroyed. And that would have been shocking for the disciples to hear. And you think, well, did, did that happen? And, and I'll tell you, it, it did. It happened within probably 40 years of when Jesus tells his disciples this. There's a Roman general named Titus, and he'll later, not too long after it, become, become an emperor. But in A.D. 70, he marches his troops in, um, and it is what ends what's called the First Jewish War. About A.D. 66, Nero had... You know, all these taxes and persecution had begun, and, and the Jews in Jerusalem, they were fearful, and they didn't like the taxes, and so they have this revolt, and it doesn't take long. Within four years, the Roman general and his army comes in, and they, just, they wipe out Jerusalem, and they, and they level that temple to the ground. There's nothing left of it. It's the temple destruction of A.D. 70. What's interesting is in Daniel's prophecy, if you went all the way back to Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, right in the middle of Daniel chapter 9 verse 26, Daniel actually prophesies the temple destruction and he says, and the people of the prince or of the, or of the ruler or of the leader is coming and shall destroy the temple and the sanctuary. As Daniel's giving a picture of the end times, this same end times that Jesus is talking about. In fact, Josephus, one of the first century historians, he, he writes this about that temple destruction. Just so it says, so you know, it says, Caesar ordered the whole city and temple to be scraped to the ground. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot. No reason for believing that it had ever been inhabited. That's destruction. And that's what Jesus prophesies. So you see these buildings here? There will not be one uh, left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so what Jesus is doing is he's prophesying an immediate future, a future that has come that, that, that a generation will see in their lifetime. Now, there are three reference points in this. Uh, let me help orient you. There are things Jesus is going to talk about in the future, the prophecy, that the generation that is alive when he's talking will see. Then there are things that will have kind of an intermediate um, happening. This age of the church. And he's going to talk about this next, verses 5 through uh, 13. 
And so those that are alive, that that are beginning the church, we read about these things in the book of Acts, but also for all the church that is to come, including us. These are are things we're experiencing. So you might call it an immediate, an intermediate, and then an ultimate. And then there are things Jesus is talking about that he looks past their day, and he's looking past our day into what is called that day, the ultimate. And about verse 14, we'll pick up with that, and then we'll circle back around. It's, it's not totally linear. There's some things back and forth, but there are three reference points. We'll try to make sure we understand where we are. Now, in verse 3, look at it again with me, and then we're going to make some, we've got to make some progress here. All right, so, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew. Now, this is interesting. Usually, it's Peter, James, and John. Here, we've got Andrew with them. And so, there, it's fun to read commentaries on things like this because they're all, people make, oh, there's so, you wouldn't believe the meaning some people find in that. Uh, and maybe there is. I, there's no proof of it. I just think, Instead of three, there's four. It's two sets of brothers. These were the first guys that were called into ministry by Jesus. And here it seems fitting that at the end of his ministry, he sits down with them to tell them what is to come. So these two sets of brothers, and there's this private setting, it seems. Maybe there were more that gathered around during. But they're asking him, and they say, okay, tell us when these things. So, so these things, verse 4, these things... These are the the immediate and intermediate. Later, we're going to see those things. Those are the things to come that are beyond. So tell us when these things will be and and what will be the sign uh, that these things are about to be accomplished. So there's two questions. The the first question, when will these things happen? Secondly, what will be the sign? And the answer to the second question Jesus is going to answer in two parts. He's going to answer um, uh, in, in 5 through 13. He's going to give us kind of a negative answer. And then he's going to give us a positive answer in 14 through 27. And, and then the second question of uh, when, when is all this going to happen, he's going to save that until we get to verse 28. So we're just looking at the second question being answered right now, beginning in verse 5, and he says this, And, and uh, Jesus said to them, See that nobody leads you astray. So, so what will be the sign? Well, one part of the sign is that there are going to be people, that they, there's going to be the temptation for you to be led astray. And so he's going to give us some examples. In verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he or I am. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear, verse 7, of wars and rumors of wars, then you need to totally freak out, get on Facebook, copy every meme that you can, and send it to all your friends. Is that what? I'm sorry, that you, that you have a different version than I do. You're going to hear, so there's going to be wars, and then you're going to hear about rumors of wars, 
Don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. It must take place. When Jesus says something must take place, here's what you can read into that. Because God has ordained that this will happen. So when the wars come, and the rumors of wars come, I don't want you to think that God is not in control sitting on the throne. You you do not have to respond with fear and with anxiety. These things must come. But the end is not yet. Verse 8, for for nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. Now, a little bit beyond the scope of things. But but why? Let's ask the question. Why would nation rise against nation? Or kingdom rise against kingdom? You don't have to answer. I realize it would be awkward for you to answer. But I want you to think about that for a second. Why would a nation rise against a nation? Why would a kingdom rise against a kingdom? Well, here are a couple of reasons. One, we are in a fallen world that is in rebellion against God. We are also in a fallen world that is in rebellion against each other. I mean, we haven't been able to get along without the help of the Holy Spirit for any extended period of time since Genesis chapter 3, since Adam answers God and says, it's not my fault, it was her fault. We've been doing that since, and we have been not about this kingdom God is building in the world. We have been about pursuing the kingdoms we are building in this world. And if you give any man or woman enough power and enough strength and enough resources, they will try to take what is not theirs. They will cross a border. They will cross a a philosophy, a religion, an ideology and say, I want that, I'm going to take it. And we have been kingdom building since Genesis chapter 3. And it is not just leaders of nations and militaries that do it. It is individuals. We, We all do it. We're all given to this. We're all given to building our own kingdoms. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And then it says that there will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. What about the earthquakes? What about the famines? Well, let me quickly say, so you have an earthquake or you have a hurricane or a famine, or a flood. And listen, I don't know, I don't have, you have, there's a good chance you have more stations on your television than I do. But regardless, every single one of us, in the midst of some hurricane that's happening, you know, that we, we know about it, 
You can find somebody on one of those stations somewhere. Now, sometimes you have to wait till after 10 o'clock at night. But somebody will get on and say, well, <laughs> you know, you know why that hurricane, right? And, and then the, the straight person of the deal says, no, tell us. And, and then they say, because that's God's judgment. And, and anybody ever heard anything like that? And it's usually like, that's God's judgment. So you should write us a check or, you know, something like that. Never miss an opportunity to raise money. So, and it's our, it's our temptation to, to want to go, okay, well, this earthquake happened or, the, you know, the, the earth is rumbling or, or, the, or the famine or the flood. And so there must be, those people must have done something wrong. And, and God's, you know, God is, 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 had, had it. He was up to his ears with it and he finally did something about it. And let me just say, that is not what the New Testament gives us the prerogative to be able to say. The earth, listen, there are earthquakes, there are tornadoes, there are hurricanes, there are famines, there are floods. The reason is, is because the earth is broken. That when sin happens in Genesis chapter 3, and mankind rebels against God, guess what? We didn't just break our relationship with God. We, mankind, sin broke creation. That's why in Romans chapter 8, it says creation, it longs for the redemption of mankind. It, it can't wait because creation itself wants to be redeemed. Tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and famine and flood. That sin and it's, and it's broken the world. And it's the birth pains, it's, it's creation groaning and longing for the end to come. But, but it's not meant for us. And listen, we'll see these things in our time, in our day, in our age, and we have. And they're birth pains. And, and, and labor is coming. And the dawn of the, of the second coming of the Messiah, you know, this, this new age to be born, it's, it's on the way. And so we say, oh, that's creation. Man, it's longing to be redeemed just like we are. And see, we go through those same things in our lives spiritually. You know, in our family, in our, in our emotions, in our circumstances, where everything feels broken and like earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and floods, and we, and we long for things to be whole and real. All right. So Jesus says, listen, th these are but the beginning. Of the birth pains in verse 9, be on your guard. Because this is what's going to happen. They'll deliver you over to councils 
And you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And every one of these things you can find in the book of Acts. In fact, Peter will find himself in prison, and sure he thought about it. Sure he went right back to this moment where Jesus, oh yeah, this is it. I remember this. Paul found himself in prison and standing before governors and then ultimately standing before emperors telling his story about how Christ broke into his world. Because in verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. There is not one arrest or interrogation or trial or persecution or suffering of a believer that will not Prove to advance the gospel that's going around the world because the Holy Spirit will be present with you in that moment even if you do not know what to say. Listen, verse 5, see that nobody leads you astray. Verse 7, do not be alarmed. Verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 11, don't be anxious. And you say things like that. Jesus is saying things like that because, listen, he doesn't want us to be lulled into any of those false claims or false ideas or, or false teachings that somehow we're headed towards a utopia or things are supposed to get better. No, he's reminding us, listen, there's adversity, there's persecution, these things. doesn't mean you're doing Christianity wrongs. It means you're doing Christianity right. And suffering and persecution, that doesn't mean the end has come. But if we had eyes to see and the long view, we'd see, listen, that's going to increase as the end draws near. And he's encouraging us to persevere. He's preparing them for the age to come. Well, Let's pick up. So go to 14, uh, verse 14. Um, But the one who sees, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, and then Mark drops, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea, flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Alas, and alas for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. Now we're into those days and Jesus is all of a sudden in the abomination of desolation taking us to those days. And those are the days that are beyond this age. Those are the days that are to come. 
And it'll be kicked off by an abomination of desolation that Daniel introduces us to in Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Daniel 11. And just like Jesus speaks, God's vision to Daniel of the future had immediate, intermediate, and ultimate fulfillments. In 168 B.C., there was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes that decided he was going to smoke a pig right on the altar. That is an abomination that causes desolation. And it led to an uprising of the Maccabees at the time. But it was not the ultimate. Jesus said, there's another one that's coming. And you read about it in Revelation. In fact, Revelation 6 to 16 is all about this time he's going to be talking about. In verse 18, pray, pray that it doesn't happen in the winter. It's probably on behalf of the pregnant women. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. It will be worse than anything you can possibly conceivably imagine. A tribulation, and you want to know about that tribulation, Revelation 6 to 16 is going to give you a picture of that. Verse 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. Now, if you're a good um, Bible church person, and I don't assume everybody is, that's okay, you're here today. All right, so you might be looking... In your study notes, okay? So, some of you have Ryrie or uh, the ESV Study Bible or uh, Life Application. Some old school have Schofield, right? And, and you start looking down there, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Did Jesus forget the rapture? And you're looking down to see, well, when do I get out of here? Uh, um, okay? Because all this seems pretty bad, and I'm, I missed the verse where I get out of here. All right. Ooh, let me see. All right. <laughs> Tell you what, let's just pray. We'll come back next week. And uh... so here's the thing Jesus does not speak about the rapture here. And you're like, Man, that is a missed opportunity, and I'm kind of with you on that. <laughs> now, Paul is going to give us some information about that. There are some things we can discern about Revelation, and, and, and I'm speaking about now the, uh, the view of a pre-tribulation rapture, which means that before the tribulation, the church is going to be caught up with Jesus. And that very well may be. There are a lot of scriptures in the New Testament that lead us to that understanding. This, however, is not one of them. 
It doesn't mean there is not a pre-tribulation rapture. It's just that Jesus isn't talking in those terms yet. Very likely may be because the church hasn't been born yet. It very likely may be, however, that because between now and the great tribulation, there's going to be plenty of tribulation that we will live through. And what Jesus is focused on is preparing us for the tribulation of whatever degree and whatever kind that it is so that we would live faithfully through times of suffering and persecution. We'd live through that well. Now, there is a great hope to come. Listen, that does not mean there is not a hope in which we long for the coming of Jesus, and, and we should remind ourselves of that often, but typically we only do that when, like, we've got a really hard day coming tomorrow, and we think things like, man, I sure hope Jesus comes back tonight. <laughs> and, that, and that's okay. But there's something more going on in this passage, that as we live this life every day, Every day ought to kindle in us this, this longing for this end to come. Because w w what happens, look in, in uh, uh, verse 24. It says, so be on guard. I've told you these things beforehand. So in, in, in verse 24, but in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the sun and the stars will fall from the heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then... They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. When his presence is manifested again in his second coming. And Jesus is wanting his disciples to hear, and he's wanting the church to hear, and he's wanting us to hear this morning. He is coming back. And everywhere in Scripture this is revealed. It never leads to an arrogance. It always leads to a humility. Daniel or Zechariah or John in Revelation always leads him to prayer and to, and to worship. And it's supposed to move us from ambivalence to expectancy, to, to, to an urgency. There's a crown, the New Testament says. Listen, there's a crown you get if, if you're one who's longing for, who's, who's going to love his appearing. Henceforth, there is laid up, 2 Timothy, a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all who have loved or longed for his appearing. It's to remind us this urgency, this expectancy. Our citizenship in Philippians 3 is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior. In Titus 2, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for that. We're longing for it. 
And what all this is meant to stir up in you and your faith is, is that day and that hour that Jesus returns. Which could be at any moment. If you skip down to verse 32 with me, but concerning that day, he's going to answer their first question. When is it going to happen? Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And Jesus is speaking now from his incarnation, from his humanity. Not, not from his deity, although his deity is there. Speaking from his humanity, we don't know. In our humanity, even in the angelic realm, that is not known. That is for the Godhead. So be on guard, he says. Verse 33, keep awake. For you don't know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will return, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, or after the church service, or before the end of the last song. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let me wrap it up. Um, Jesus says a lot. He, he, we say, we, we want to know when, the, when we'll be gone. You know? It's like we read this and all we want is say, okay, that's great. I'll get all the, when do I leave here? When, when's the rapture happen? But that's not the focus of Jesus' teaching. He's not focused on when we're gone. He's focused on while we're here. How do we live? How do we live while we're here? One, we live with this expectancy, an urgency. We live with a great humility. We don't live predicting the future. We live faithful in the present. Especially in trials. And suffering. Let me say a couple of things. One, we're in the end times. We are in the end times. What does that mean? I, I, don't, I don't fully know. I just know we are. It's what Jesus says. But I know we're not the people who are given the right or the authority or even the insight to set a date about that. We're, we're people who are invited uh, to long for the appearing of Jesus. And there's not anything left. His, his, his return is, is imminent, which means it could happen at any moment. It could happen at any moment. And, and we're, we're to be people who, who long for it, which means... All of our investments in earthly kingdoms are temporary at best. And so we hear what Jesus teaches the disciples and we're, we're left with questions like, okay, where is our hope? What is our hope in? What, what, what are we investing in? So I feel that this morning. In less than two months, this is so great. I can't believe it. In less than two, on May the 30th, 
of this year, Bethel turns 40 years old. Can you believe it? And it is something we're going to celebrate and we want to remember the 40 years and the group of people that 40 years ago gathered in an old office building downtown to plant this church with a vision of what it would mean for Tyler, realizing they can only see a little bit of it, and then God ended up doing exceedingly more than they could possibly ask or imagine, and that's worth celebrating. At the same time, it's a good time to ask, well, what about the next 40 years? And we've been talking about that a lot around here. How do we invest ourselves in that next 40 years that, that God would do more than seedingly more than we could ask or imagine. We, it was things we couldn't even, even dream of now, but we hope that he'll do. Praying for what's next. Where's next? Who's next? That the best energy we have, that our resources would go to that, that we would, we would invest in that. Fighting for each other's faith. Being dead level certain of the end that we're pursuing. Calling our friends and family and loved ones out of the stream of culture and kingdom building to, to swim upstream with us for lives that are different. For a lifetime of Christianity. Pouring into others. We want to, as Jesus says, stay awake. I want us to be a, a wide awake church. Longing for his return. If you would, would you, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray for that. I feel the burden of that. That you'd, you would help us, that we would, we would look more to more than just the end of the day or the end of the week or to the end of that thing we're worried about. Or, Father, but all these things would, would work in us and, and kindle in us this longing for your return, re realizing that at any moment... At any next breath could be the moment that you appear. And Father, we want to be, we want to have been found in that moment longing for your appearing. And so if we knew that it was next week, or, or, or we knew it was Thursday at noon. What, well, how would we live differently between now and then? And Father, I pray we'd feel that kind of urgency. I pray we'd feel that kind of hope. And the desire for those around us to know you. To know you. So, Father, I pray, I pray you do that in us, in all of us, in all our campuses, and all the ways that you're moving across East Texas with believers gathered all over this morning. Would you create an urgency in us?
So, Father, that's the fact. We ask for from your word this morning by your spirit. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus.